You may be seated. Thank you, Eric. Till hope in full fruition die, while we're here, we want our hope to grow into fullness and the full fruitfulness of having great hope. But once we die, there's no more need for hope. Is there a place in the Bible that tells us that? Romans chapter 8. You know, once we're in heaven, there's no need for hope and we want to be wrapped up all then in love. The love of God for us, the love of Christ for us, and our love for Him, and our love for all our brothers and sisters that will be there glorified together with Him. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Let me show you what I referred to in the first service. It's Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles 19, and let's look at the kind of ministers that Hezekiah put throughout the land. Second Chronicles chapter 19. This is a revival. Amen. Verse 5. It's speaking of King Hezekiah. And he set judges in the land throughout all the fenced cities of Judah, city by city, and said to the judges, Take heed what ye do, for ye judge not for man, but for the Lord, who is with you in the judgment. Wherefore now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take heed and do it. For there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, nor respect of persons, nor taking of gifts. Moreover in Jerusalem did Jehoshaphat set... This is Jehoshaphat, not Hezekiah. Moreover in Jerusalem did Jehoshaphat set of the Levites, and of the priests, and of the chief of the fathers of Israel, for the judgment of the Lord and for controversies when they returned to Jerusalem. And he charged them, saying, Thus shall ye do in the fear of the Lord, faithfully and with a perfect heart. And what cause soever shall come to you of your brethren that dwell in their cities, between blood and blood, between law and commandment, statutes and judgments, ye shall even warn them that they trespass not against the Lord, And so wrath come upon you and upon your brethren. This do, and ye shall not trespass. And behold, Amariah the chief priest is over you in all matters of the Lord. And Zebediah the son of Ishmael, the ruler of the house of Judah, for all the king's matters. Also the Levites shall be officers before you. Deal courageously, and the Lord shall be with the good. And amen. amen. It's the 10th verse that uh, is an elaboration upon what is found in 2 Timothy 2.15 about rightly dividing the word of truth. Because in this 10th verse, it says that there's going to be blood versus blood or family versus family conflicts. And there's going to be conflicts in God's own word between law and commandment and between statutes and judgments. And that they should not trespass against the Lord, but rightly divide in those cases and come up with a solution that is God's solution for the controversy. And so there is a controversy about the doctrine of eternal security. 
There are those that believe that you can lose your salvation, meaning you can lose eternal life. And there are those that don't believe that. We do not believe that you can lose your salvation when that salvation is defined as eternal life. God has saved us with an everlasting salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ and every component and part of it is certain from election before the world began to glorification after this world is over. Let us turn now to one of the problem texts that cause some to fear and tremble to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. I read to you the last three verses. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. The words that sometimes trouble men is the first clause of verse 18. And if the righteous scarcely be saved. Well, if the righteous are scarcely saved, the reasoning goes, then I'm not going to be saved. Because if salvation is barely accomplished and barely done, I'm the least, I'm the biggest sinner, I won't be saved. I wish it didn't say something like that in the Bible. Well, let me try to give you an answer for this particular text. Remember our two-step approach. First, we prove what it cannot mean. It cannot mean that we are barely saved to eternal life. I thought I read to all of us as we opened this assembly that we have received double for all our sins in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, and that we are to comfort Jerusalem. What comfort can there be if we're scarcely saved? I read in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, that if we make our calling and election sure, there will be an entrance administered unto us abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ would say that He is able to save to the uttermost all that come unto God by Him, what is this scarcely saved stuff? It, listen, I... If we were to sit and reason about it, I'm the first one to go if salvation is scarcely accomplished. I'm thankful, though, that this verse isn't talking about eternal life when it says, and if the righteous scarcely be saved. Listen, the fact that it calls them righteous should give you great comfort right there because the only righteousness the New Testament knows about in a passage like this where men are called the righteous It's the righteousness of Christ that is over them, and there's nothing scarce, maybe, about it. It's certain and sure. Sure and steadfast. This anchor that enters within the veil. I hope that the boat of your heart can find some stability in life by letting down your anchor, and your anchor going inside the veil. What's inside the veil? God Himself is there. And the Lord Jesus Christ, and I hope that all of you can be filled with hope. What is this verse talking about? We have abundantly proved that eternal life cannot be lost. And that is the message of the Bible, that there will not be a single one of God's elect lost. 
The verse does not say that the righteous will be lost. Notice that, please. The verse says the righteous will be saved. But it's that word scarcely that bothers you, doesn't it? Read the context. I want to start back at verse 12, and I want you to look for a word that starts with S. And it's not strange. Okay? I'm going to read a few verses because I want you to learn how to read the context. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf." Then verse 19, Wherefore let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. If there is a faithful Creator to which you can commit your soul, does that mean you're scarcely going to get eternal life? No. It is not talking about scarcely, barely, maybe not, getting eternal life. Because it's a faithful creator that's going to take care of you, and you may commit your soul to him for well-doing. You can commit your soul to him that he will keep your soul. The apostle Paul said, I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. What is this scarcely in here for? The judgment beginning at the house of God is not hell. It's not necessarily death like at the church of Corinth. It's persecution and suffering that the passage describes from verse 12 all the way to the end. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. The first chapter of this epistle begins with the same message that for the trying and perfecting of their faith, God was going to allow fires, God was going to allow trials, temptations, persecutions, and afflictions Try the faith of these believers. When you look at the life of a Christian, when you look at the life of one of these Christians, and you know if we had a life more like these, we would probably be better believers. Our lives are too easy. What we want to see here is that surrounding this scarcely saved phrase is the fact that suffering and persecution and a fiery trial was the lot of God's people. So that when you looked at a Christian, and you looked at their life in this world, they're scarcely saved because they go through so much here, but they get heaven there, and they get heaven as certainly, and as surely, and as completely, and without doubt, and there's no scarcity to the opening of heaven's gates to God's elect but they look like they're barely saved because they don't look like they have a very blessed life in this world because of the suffering that is all around this particular expression in the Bible. 
The judgment is not eternal life. Because those being considered are God's elect going to heaven, as chapter 1 and verse 2 told us. In this first Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. But the Bible does tell us this. And I read to you, I want you to stay there at first Peter chapter 4. The Apostle Paul taught this in Acts chapter 14. When he had started churches along with Barnabas on his first trip, and then he went back through all those churches before he went back to his home church, he confirmed the souls of the disciples. And he did it this way. Confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Before we get to heaven, at least for those in New Testament times, before we get to heaven, there was a lot of tribulation to go through. Some died. Some were martyrs like we hear about in our assemblies. Some lost their goods. If you read Hebrews 10 last night, you read about the spoiling of their goods. You read about their afflictions. And you read about their friends being so used. And so that is what 1 Peter chapter 4 is describing, that we must through much tribulation enter in to the kingdom of heaven. And so it looks like, and if the righteous scarcely be saved, if the righteous whom God loves that He gives heaven to endure such a course of affliction and persecution and trial and temptation in this world, what in the world is He going to do to the wicked? If His own children endure such suffering in this life, what is God going to do to the wicked? Because it says, And if the righteous scarcely be saved, if their lives here in this world look like they're quite troubled, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? These persecuted brethren of ours, persecuted in New Testament times, persecuted in 1689, they shall appear before the Lord Jesus Christ and be welcomed into heaven with the words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. But when they were in this world, it didn't look like there was very much favor upon them. They look like they're scarcely saved. But where will the wicked and the ungodly appear? Where will they stand before Jesus Christ? And how will they be found? The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Amen. Psalm 5.5 5. They'll have no place to stand. The righteous will. But in this world, it doesn't look like much blessing upon them, but they have another world coming. Because when you read the context, that is everything around this verse is the suffering that God has chosen for them, but they can commit their souls through martyrdom, through persecution, through imprisonment, like we heard about today, they'll end up being saved, though from this vantage point it looks like scarcely saved, but still they're going to be saved, and where will the righteous and ungodly appear? They'll have no blessing, benefit, favor, or protection when they stand before God. John taught the same thing. I've just shown you that Paul taught it, that we through much tribulation must enter into the kingdom of God. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9, John says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9, I know thy works and tribulation. Verse 10, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. 
Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation. 1 Peter 4.17 is just looking at the state of the righteous from this life, that they're scarcely saved. They're going to get an abundant entrance into heaven, but it's focusing here on them because there's going to be so much persecution about them. And the apostle is encouraging them by saying, if the righteous go through this, if God allows this to happen first at the church of God, verse 17, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. If there's going to be trials and tribulations allowed upon God's own people, just think what's going to happen to his enemies. And if you read the, if you read the rest of scripture about this particular subject, you find that when the righteous are persecuted by the wicked, the righteous taking the persecution, it's a proof of eternal life. Philippians chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And when the wicked persecute the righteous for their righteousness, it's proof and evidence they're damned and on their way to hell. Philippians chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. How it is stated here is, if the righteous scarcely be saved, what in the world's going to happen to the wicked? If God allows judgment to come into the church of God and the house of God to trouble His saints and to allow a period of trial, the fiery trial of verse 12, the suffering that is described, what in the world is He going to do to the wicked? And so this text doesn't have anything to do about eternal life. It has to do with their persecution in this world and looking at it, it seems that they're scarcely saved because they live such miserable lives, so poor, poverty, persecution, imprisonment, punishment, loss of all things, and even some gave up their lives. There is a huge difference. The righteous suffer a little now, but the wicked are damned forever. There is no fear of losing salvation here, for a faithful creator is in the immediate context, and they will be saved. It's just that they look scarcely saved. And if the righteous scarcely be saved. That if is based on all that's gone around this verse, and that is the persecution and sufferings that they were about to endure, and they were about to get started. And some of those early saints in those centuries, and in those years and decades, under the Roman emperors did suffer a great deal. The martyrs that we hear about illustrate this perfectly to us. When we think about salvation and God's blessing upon His righteous ones and the ones that He's made righteous and His elect, and we look at their lives and we look at that family that we heard about today that died in the Newgate prison in London, England in 1689 after four years of imprisonment, we think they're scarcely saved. You know, it looks so pitiful for them. Their lives are so strained, so stressed. And, you know, family members were dying before the eyes of the other family members. But they're in heaven. And they're in heaven abundantly. And if they were to commit their souls to the Lord as to a faithful creator, he would take care of their souls in well-doing. But the wicked and the ungodly, where will they stand when God unleashes his judgment against them? May the Lord take away any fear of the words, if the righteous scarcely be saved. It is not talking about eternal destiny. It is talking here about the fact that the suffering makes the righteous look like God is not blessing them very abundantly, but He is. He's taking care of them as a faithful Creator in well-doing, keeping their souls, 
and they can trust what's happening to them and their suffering to the will of God. Let's come over now to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. It's been said by pastors that Hebrews 6 verses 4 through 6 are probably three of the most troubling verses in the Bible to believers and three of the most difficult verses to explain. And the number of alternatives for the explanation leads us to think that. In verses 1 through 3, the apostle wants to leave the principles of the doctrine of Christ. And while we're here, I want to look at the principles of the doctrine of Christ. There's a reason why we preach repentance and faith toward God, because it's a principle of the doctrine of Christ. If we don't preach repentance along with faith, or if we don't preach repentance before faith, we've left the doctrine of Christ. And thus, all that I have said to you about the lordship controversy that is had in certain circles. When we start going through what Paul lists as the principles, the elementary facts of the gospel in verses 1 and 2. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation. These are the first principles of Christianity. Right here are the elementary, rudimentary facts of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his religion. And he says, I don't want to lay them again. You don't need them. Once you've repented and exercised faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't need this again. Once you've been baptized, you don't need to hear about baptism again. Let's go on to some more exciting things, some more profitable things, some higher level learning about the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, being a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and other lofty subjects. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. That tells us right there that preliminarily, first, fundamentally, when it comes to the religion of Jesus Christ, there should be repentance from dead works. These are Jews. They had trusted in the works of Moses' law in order to be saved, and they were to repent from such a foolish effort on their part and turn toward God and have faith in Him. Then it's of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands. There's healing and ordination and of resurrection of the dead. That's 1 Corinthians 15. And of eternal judgment. That there is eternal judgment. These are basics. These are fundamental principles, and this will we do if God permit. Because Paul wanted to leave those things Because if they had been teachers when they should have been, back in the last three verses of chapter 5, they wouldn't need to hear those things again. Now he has explained that, that there is no need to hear about repentance again. So we come to the next three verses, and they say that uh, if a person falls away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. And uh, that's a pretty serious statement there. And when we go through the rest of the chapters, I hope you did last night, it gives characteristics of the righteous and the wicked. And it describes that God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love in verse 10. And that everyone should show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope to the end. Verse 11, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience, the very components are given for you to absolutely know that your anchor is within the veil. And I do not have time to preach from verses 7 to the end of the chapter, I just want to explain to you what is going on in verses 4 through 6. These are some of the most difficult verses in the Bible 
for many, or for most, or for almost all. Now they make up their option, they make up their alternative interpretations to try to get out of the passage, but let's take a look at it. For it is impossible. Now this is the Apostle Paul writing by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. It is impossible if this audience fell away, to renew them again unto repentance because of the severity of their crime against the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, here's how we understand these three verses. Remember, the book of Hebrews is written to Hebrews. How many years do you need to spend in seminary to figure that one out? The book of Hebrews is written to Hebrews. What's a Hebrew? A Hebrew is a Jewish believer. A Hebrew is a Jew. In this particular case, as Paul addresses these people throughout the book of Hebrews, he calls them beloved brethren and brethren and so forth. And they are believers that have been baptized. That's why he doesn't want to preach about baptism, because they're already baptized believers that have followed the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostle is writing them. Hebrews was written to a unique generation of Jewish converts to Christianity. Remember, the entire book is dedicated to Jesus Christ's superiority and Paul's appeal to them not to go back to animal sacrifices of Moses' system in Jerusalem and the temple there. The Apostle Paul is writing this before the destruction of Jerusalem. Remember that Paul used every means possible to accomplish the above objective, including the use of threats and warnings. The Apostle Paul, in 13 chapters of Hebrews, tries to convince his Jewish audience not to backslide and go back to Moses' system of animal sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem by first pointing out the superiority of the New Testament gospel to everything the Old Testament could offer. And he took the Old Testament apart point by point in these 13 chapters and showed the New Testament of Jesus Christ to be superior. The second thing he pointed out, and he pointed it out numerous times, is that there was a curse upon that generation of Jews and they were going to be burned up certainly because they were the adversaries of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ because they had crucified Him. Chapters 3 and 4 are committed to the fact that the curse of God upon the generation that came out of Egypt was just like the curse of God that was coming upon that generation that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, second argument by the Apostle, if you backslide and go back and align yourself with those Jews that are worshiping in Jerusalem, you will put yourself in the camp that is going to be destroyed by the Roman armies. You will put yourself under the physical curse of God to burn up the nation. And so he's got this positive approach in the book that Jesus Christ in the New Testament gospel is superior to every part of the old. And he's got the warning and the threat that if they go back, 
They're going to align themselves with the enemies and adversaries of Jesus Christ and a certain judgment is coming upon them which the whole New Testament and much of the Old Testament describes by way of prophecy. So when we look at these verses, these were truly God's elect and regenerated saints. Arminians, honest Arminians. There's two kinds of Arminians. Most of you have never met an honest Arminian. An honest Arminian is, is really the proper use of the word. They believe that you can lose your salvation. They're free will Baptists. They're the Church of Christ or Campbellites. They are the Church of God. They're denominations that believe you can lose your salvation. They're honest Arminians. You can lose your salvation. So they look at a text like this and say, See, you can lose your salvation if they shall fall away. Well, you know what we say to them? Then nobody ever gets saved again because it says it's impossible to renew them again to repentance once they do fall away. So you got yourself in a real mess. This passage isn't teaching that you can lose your salvation. If you can lose your salvation, no one's ever going to get it back. Because it's impossible to renew them. Now Calvinists come along and say all these are false professors. They love false professors because it, it helps them avoid a great deal of the Bible. So they come up with this category of false professors. Now the Apostle Paul certainly wasted a lot of ink to write about false professors since false professors are reprobates and can never be saved anyway. What good is there of writing about false professors? Right. There's no good at all. That is blasphemy on the part of those baby-sprinkling heretics to think that these are false professors when the Holy Spirit takes such pains to tell us that they were once enlightened. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. They were once enlightened. Reprobates do not find a single thing in the Gospel of light to them. They are not enlightened. The things of the Spirit of God are foolishness unto them. We could go through this list and just tear them apart of trying to get false professors out of this list. The Holy Spirit is taking pains, and we should honor God who wrote this Bible of the pains He took to prove to us that these are saved people under consideration. They're the ones the epistle is written to, and Paul didn't write Hebrews to reprobates, nor did he write it to false professors. They were once enlightened. They once knew that the Lord Jesus Christ was the only Savior from sin, and they were baptized in His name, but now they are thinking of going back to animal sacrifices. They have tasted of the heavenly gift. Jesus Christ tasted death for every man. Was that just getting a little taste of it? Or was that enduring a penal substitutionary death for every man? In Hebrews chapter 2, they tasted of the heavenly gift. They had it. They enjoyed it. They understood it. They were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. Since when do reprobates become partakers of the Holy Ghost? They've tasted the good Word of God. They've had the Scriptures open to them, and they have understood them and believed them. And the powers of the world to come, they understood heaven and the way to get to heaven. If they shall fall away, these are the ones that, these are the ones that, uh, Paul is writing to. If they shall fall away. Now what is that falling away? That falling away is what the apostle is using the whole book of Hebrews for. It is falling away from the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Moses system of worship that was being celebrated in the temple in Jerusalem of animal sacrifices, which is why he says, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. 
by going back to animal sacrifices, you are taking the, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ and scoffing at it and crucifying Him afresh. You're putting Him to death just like the Jews that did put Him to death because you are going back and entering into their assemblies with them in Jerusalem around animal sacrifices. And those men hated the Lord Jesus Christ and hated all of Jesus Christ's followers. These were truly God's elect and regenerated saints by virtue of what's described in Hebrews in general and the description in the context. So the falling away cannot be eternal falling away because no one can fall away eternally from God's eternal election and everlasting covenant of salvation. The judgment isn't eternal life because those being considered are God's elect going to heaven. Therefore, the falling away must be of a practical nature and the judgment must be of a practical nature also. If you create reprobate professors here, then reprobate professors partake of Christ as do saints. Reprobates can fall from salvation, though they never had it. The passage has no value for them or for the elect. It's a waste of ink and paper. These genuine Hebrew saints were tempted to return to the Jews' religion, which would be a grave offense against Jesus Christ, for God had sworn against that generation which Hebrews 4 describes, and so does verse 8 right here in this context. You cannot be brought back to repentance here, because the text declares that it's impossible. Verse 4, it is impossible. If you are going to stick eternal life in this passage, recovery is not possible. Can forget heaven for anyone that sins and falls away. However, by studying Hebrews, we know this is a warning against falling away from the gospel to Jesus, to, for, of Jesus Christ to Moses' system. That's the whole purpose of Hebrews. Right. They wouldn't go back. They wouldn't go back. They wouldn't turn back. They would understand that uh, the ordinances of the New Testament are better. The sacrifices of the New Testament are better. The priest of the New Testament is better. The promises of the New Testament are better. The covenant of the New Testament is better. Everything is better. And to go back is to align yourself with the murderers of the Lord Jesus Christ and to say that animal blood is more important than the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, why didn't he say all that? He doesn't need to say all that. If you read the book of Hebrews, you'd know that's what he's saying. If they shall fall away. Fall away from what? From the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fall away to what? To the animal sacrifices of the Jewish system, which is the whole lesson of this book, that it has been done away. The irremediable judgment. When I use the word irremediable, it means unavoidable. The unavoidable judgment. For it is impossible for those that shall fall away to renew them again to repentance, but they are aligning themselves as the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's unavoidable judgment that's coming, and that is taught throughout the New Testament, and it's taught in much of the Old, as what God brought on the murderers of the Lord Jesus Christ in 70 A.D. The four unavoidable warnings in Hebrews, and there's four of them, we're looking at one of them, and hopefully when we look at all four of them, you'll be able to appreciate all of them better, and each one better, once you've seen all of them. The four unavoidable warnings in Hebrews are of coming practical judgment on Israel in 70 A.D., which any Hebrew Christians returning to Jewish worship would fall under that judgment. The warnings are not for Gentiles losing eternal life and going to hell. He isn't even writing Gentiles. That's why the first question is, who does Paul writing this epistle to? Hebrews. It's named Hebrews to help you out right off the bat. 
And you say, well, does that mean that Gentiles don't have as much interest in the book of Hebrews as the Hebrew? Not, no, not as much. Do you think that you have as much interest in the book of Leviticus as the Levites did? You couldn't figure out the book of Leviticus if your life depended on it. But your life doesn't depend on it, but their lives did depend on it. And they figured it all out. They knew how to apply every single thing in there because it was rules for the Levites, not rules for you. You can't live by the rules of the Levites and from the book of Leviticus. And the book of Hebrews has a first and primary audience of Hebrews that the Apostle Paul addressed in 60 A.D., not Gentiles in 2014. Okay, let's go to another one. I hope that as we look at, you know, we could preach through every clause of this place. And we've done that before, and it's available on the website, but let's go look at another one, and I hope that by looking at all four, you'll see it more clearly. Let's go to chapter 10, which you read last evening as well. I'll begin reading, and these are scary verses. At verse 26, if we don't understand them correctly. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. At a first pass, what is verse 26 teaching us? If you sin presumptuously, it's over for you. There's no more sacrifice for sins. You're dead. You're on your way to hell, isn't it? First pass. Let's read it again. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. It's got to be hell. Fire, hell, hell, fire. Right? Got to be. Verse 28, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Armenians come along and say, See, you can lose your salvation, you can get yourself into a predicament where there is no more sacrifice for sins. Oh, by the way, I said honest Armenians. The honest Armenians would say you can lose your salvation. The Armenians that you meet with every day, they would just come along and say, that, that passage doesn't mean anything. You made a decision for Jesus. Everything's fine with you. Just ignore it. That's how they study the Bible. As long as you've made a decision for Jesus, ignore everything that contradicts with that decision for Jesus. Calvinists come along and say these are false professors. False professors that are sanctified by the blood of the covenant. Mm-hmm. Yep. I was thinking that too. False professors. When Jesus, when it says of here a quote from the Old Testament, the Lord shall judge Satan's people. The Lord shall judge his people. For we know him that hath said there in verse 30, vengeance belongeth unto me. Okay, what is this passage teaching us? This passage is teaching us the same thing as chapter 6 is teaching, which is Paul's negative approach to warn these Jewish believers not to go back to Moses' system. That is, departing from the truth that they had received. If we sin willfully, 
if we sin willfully, does that mean that anything that you've been warned about and you go ahead and commit a sin willfully, that you're going to be in trouble of fiery judgment that's going to devour the adversaries? Is that is this just some ordinary lying when you knew that lying was wrong because you heard the truth that lying was bad? Or a man fantasizing about a woman when he's been told from Matthew 5.28 that whoso looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Is that what this passage is talking about? Is that what the book of Hebrews is about? Or have we been led by a very careful path all the way to this 10th chapter that there is a judgment upon that generation of Jews and therefore they ought to fear lest any of them should seem to come short of God's blessing. What is this saying to us? Verse 26, if we, the Apostle Paul is putting himself in the number, does that sound like reprobates? Is Paul in the pronoun we? Yes, he is. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. This sinning willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth is the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ who by His death on the cross put away all sacrifices forever having perfected them that are sanctified. To depart from that and to sin willfully by going back and into Moses' system of religion which is the whole lesson of this book by its context is to make the blood of the cross of none effect like we read about in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4. If you sin that way, by departing from the gospel of Jesus Christ and going back to the animal sacrificial system of Moses' law, there is nothing left for you but a certain, fearful, looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Who are the adversaries? The enemies of Jesus Christ, the apostles, and the believers in that 40-year period of time between 30 A.D. and 70 A.D. They were the adversaries of the Christian church at that time. You would be aligning yourself with them, and there was certain judgment coming upon them because from John the Baptist to Jesus to Paul to Peter, they had warned about the judgment coming on that generation, and it had come up, it was coming upon them to the uttermost. And those prophecies have all been preached at other times. Then the apostle, to show the severity of what was coming, shows that in verse 28, when you despise Moses' law, you died without mercy under two or three witnesses of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God. So there's the sinning willfully. When you commit a sin, you don't trod underfoot the Son of God the way that these Jews could trod underfoot the Son of God by giving up their baptism, giving up the Lord Jesus Christ, going back and joining themselves with the murderers of the Lord Jesus Christ and trusting animal sacrifices for their redemption. That's the sin that's under consideration here, and it's plainly stated. It's trotting underfoot the Son of God and counting the blood of the covenant wherewith He was sanctified. This is a saved, elect person, an unholy thing. For a Jew that had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to go back and start taking up animal sacrifices again, he is counting the blood of the covenant an unholy thing. He is considering the blood of Jesus Christ unholy. This is the sin. The context tells us what verse 26 is teaching us, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. These are partakers of the Holy Ghost. 
The Holy Ghost had come upon the apostles in works and power. The Holy Ghost had regenerated them to believe the gospel. And now they're going to go back to the spiritless religion of the enemies of Jesus Christ? It was a very serious matter of how much sore punishment shall he be thought worthy. If you despise Moses' law, you died without mercy under two or three witnesses. There was no mercy for you. How much worse is it going to be? Notice what happened to those that despise Moses' law. Does it say they went to hell? It says they died. He that despised Moses' law died. What's coming? A certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation. What is that fire? It's the burning up of Jerusalem. It's John the Baptist saying of the Lord Jesus Christ, He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. What did Jesus Christ do to those men and their city that would not receive His Son? He burned up their city and miserably destroyed those, and destroyed those, miserably destroyed those murderers. So, this passage is teaching the very same thing. For we know him that hath said, Paul saying, along with his brethren that he's writing to, vengeance belongeth unto me. The Lord Jesus Christ said that the destruction of Jerusalem was the days of vengeance, that all vengeance should be fulfilled. I will recompense, saith the Lord. The Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And it certainly was in 70 AD when they fell into the hands of the living God. And if they were to depart and count the blood of the covenant an unholy thing and go back and align themselves with those murderers of the Lord Jesus Christ, they would be burned up along with them. That's Hebrews chapter 10. Before we leave this passage, look at verse 25. It says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. You're a Jewish audience in 60 AD and you've read all the, you've read the words of John the Baptist. You've read the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've read the words of Peter from the day of Pentecost. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. You've read all about a day of judgment that is coming. It's called the day of judgment. It's called the day of the Lord in Malachi chapter four, verses five and six. You've read all that and you read a verse like this. Are you going to have any problem understanding it? Is this the second coming? This isn't the second coming. Can you tell me how you can see the second coming approaching? Would somebody please enlighten me that they are wiser than the Son of God? That you can see the second coming approaching. This is the destruction of Jerusalem that is coming, and these Jews had better be banding together and considering one another and provoking each other to love and to good works so that they will hold fast their profession of faith. Verse 23, without wavering, for he that is faithful that promised, they don't even want to waver in holding fast their profession of faith. They want to get together in all their assemblies and exhort one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching, and that day is the destruction of Jerusalem because of the timing of this book and the audience of this book. It can be no other. Let's go to chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. This is difficult to explain without preaching through these phrase by phrase and without having led you all the way through the book of Hebrews, but I hope that you will consider these things carefully. It is obvious. It is clear. It is plain. The Arminians say, honest Arminians say, you can lose your salvation. We know they're wrong. Calvinists say these are all false professors. The descriptions that the Holy Spirit gives of these people are absolutely not false professors. They are the true children of God. They are not reprobates. They're God's elect. And Paul treats them as such all the way through this epistle. He deals with them very tenderly and kindly. He includes himself in pronouns with them. He calls them brethren, beloved brethren. 
and refers to all the good things that they've enjoyed. They've been sanctified by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But to go back against that blood and to count it an unholy thing to themselves, that would be to depart from the truth that God had given them and to backslide in such a serious way that they would put themselves in a group of people that were going to be severely judged in just a few years. And that day was approaching. Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we... Verse 1. Therefore... We ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape? If we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders, and with divers miracles, and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. How shall we escape is the question and the question mark at the end of verse 4. How shall we escape? There is no escape. If you neglect the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that was confirmed by Jesus and his apostles and the power of the Holy Ghost upon them, if you neglect that doctrine of salvation and you go back to Moses' system of religion, how will you escape God's judgment? If the word spoken by angels was steadfast, verse 2, that is the Old Testament. The Old Testament was given by angels on Mount Sinai. The Bible says that very plainly in several places. The word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. How shall we escape if we ignore, neglect salvation that was preached by Jesus and his apostles? It'll be far worse is the obvious conclusion of Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. Remember, we're still in Hebrews, so it's still written to Hebrews. It's one book, so it was written at one time by the Apostle Paul before he died, before 70 A.D. Same warning given throughout this epistle. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? You can't neglect your eternal life. Your eternal life is in the hands of God. What can you neglect? You can neglect the gospel of your salvation because it says here, which at the first began to be spoken. We're talking about the preached word of the gospel of salvation of Jesus Christ. And you can neglect that and go sliding back in because you're being persecuted and you're being troubled and you're being denied Jerusalem's access and all the benefits there. You know that the temple worship was God's religion, but there's a change taking place. And that time of reformation is coming to an end when God would level that temple. Come over to chapter 12 and we'll get the fourth occurrence in this epistle of this unavoidable judgment by sinning against the gospel of Jesus Christ for these Jewish believers and aligning themselves with the enemies of Christ and being judged in and part of their judgment. Hebrews 12, 25. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God 
is a consuming fire. Then here's the mention of fire again. Verse 25, See that you refuse not him that speaketh. The Lord Jesus Christ has spoken from heaven. God sent the Word made flesh to preach the gospel, which has been mentioned throughout this epistle, which we've already read. And the apostle again appeals to the Old Testament and says in the middle of verse 25, For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. That's Mount Sinai. That's Old Testament. And the severe judgment that came from disobeying God's form of religion that came down on Mount Sinai. Now God is shaking things apart. That Old Testament kingdom of Moses is disappearing. There's a new kingdom that has arrived. And that new kingdom is the last kingdom. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. And God's consuming fire fell upon that nation just as prophesied and just as quoted by Paul in that 29th verse from the book of Deuteronomy upon those murderers and their city for crucifying the Lord of glory. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. If we neglect so great salvation, if we sin willfully after that we've received the knowledge of the truth, if they shall fall away, all these warnings about these Hebrews These Hebrew Christians in a very tentative and difficult generation, if they did not hold fast, they would be burned up in the destruction of the Jewish nation. And so there are all these warnings. Now, brethren, we're Gentiles and we're living in 2014, about 1944 years after the destruction of Jerusalem and the burning up of the saints. And all those that heeded the Lord Jesus Christ when they saw the armies of Cestius Gallus encompass the city of Jerusalem. And that siege was lifted. They left the city of Jerusalem and went across the Jordan River and survived in Pella. They endured to the end and they were saved. Just as Jesus had taught them to flee to the mountains and not to be consumed in his judgment upon his enemies. That doesn't apply to us. You know, it's amazing uh, how these dispensationalists will come along and say that Matthew 24 is speaking about a future event. We've mocked them many times before. If it's speaking about a future event, then what's the big deal about Jesus coming in the rapture when a mother is nursing her children? In Matthew chapter 24, it says, But woe unto them that be with child in those days and are nursing. You want to leave your home and flee into the mountains and have to eke out a living in the mountains nursing a baby? Does that make sense now? The whole Bible makes sense when we understand an event that was the fulfillment of prophecies commencing in the book of Deuteronomy upon his church and how they would treat his son when he finally sent his son and how God would judge them severely. I need a few ushers. Here's a little table that I hope will help you understand four passages of Scripture that are hard for some to understand. Hebrews 6 is probably the most commonly looked at and misunderstood where it says it is impossible to renew them again if they shall fall away. To renew them again means they were once regenerated to repentance. But once they go against that repentance, if you're a Hebrew in the year 60 AD, if you go against it and rejoin Moses' system of religion at the temple in Jerusalem, repudiating Jesus Christ, you were under the curse on that generation. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. 
How shall ye escape the damnation of hell? Jesus told that generation. Upon this generation I will bring all the righteous blood from Abel to Zechariah. Every bit of righteous blood described in the Old Testament, the judgment was coming on that generation. They would put themselves under that judgment. If you look at this little table, I've put it together to try to help you understand these four passages from the book of Hebrews that some misconstrue, corrupt and pervert and twist as teaching that you can lose eternal life. You can see across the top, there's unavoidable judgment in all four places. How shall we escape means there is no escape. It is impossible in chapter 6 means it's impossible. Chapter 10, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. So whatever judgment is under consideration, there's no deliverance from it. Chapter 12, much more shall not we escape. So there's unavoidable judgment. Below that are the conditional statements in all four places. If we neglect so great salvation, if they shall fall away, if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. So there we have the condition. And those Hebrews were facing that crucial generation as to whether they would follow the Lord Jesus Christ or repudiate Him and go back to Moses and animal sacrifices. And so the apostle is using everything by his inspired wit. And the book of Hebrews is beautiful. The book of Hebrews sets forth the preeminence of Jesus Christ that He is superior to everything they had under the Old Covenant. And it includes these four warnings that if you backslide and go back, the judgment is going to be ferocious and you'll put yourself under a curse where there is no recovery for you. Because God the Holy Spirit will be highly offended if you count the blood of the covenant whereby you were sanctified an unholy thing and you do despite to the Spirit of grace that blessed you in your conversion to the gospel, you're going to go back and be blinded and be part of that nation when it's burned up. That doesn't mean they're going to hell. It means they were going to be burned up with the rest of the Jews. That's why Peter would spend so much time on the day of Pentecost saying, save yourselves, not from hell, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Lord, please help everyone to see it. And to understand the glory of the book of Hebrews and to understand the glorious chronology of the events that were taking place. The time of Reformation was about to come to a close. Meaning the period of time from 30 A.D. to 70 A.D., that 40-year period of time where the two covenants ran side by side, God was about to eliminate the old covenant. When you look across the line for honest Arminians, they look at all four places and say, yep, you can lose your salvation. Modern Arminians just say, hey, you made a decision for Jesus, that's all that matters. Ignore the verse. Traditional Calvinists, these are only false professors. No wonder they can't figure out baptism. False professors have to. What else are they going to do with it? They believe in the eternal security of the believer. If you believe in the eternal security of the believer, what else are you going to do with these four passages? You don't have a choice. Got to make them false professors. What was I taught? I was taught by the unlearned and the unstable when it came to these four passages of Scripture that they are nothing but hypothetical and impossible. Interesting. I wonder why Paul would spend so much time on something hypothetical and impossible for it to even happen. The proof of eternal life in all four sections. Paul included himself in we. Are you looking at Hebrews chapter 2 in the line of the row called proof of eternal life? Paul included himself in the we. Renewed earlier to repentance in chapter 6. Sanctified by the covenant blood in chapter 10. 
The Lord shall judge his people. And in chapter 12, Paul included himself again. You know, down at, down at the bottom, you can see the Old Testament comparison in three of the passages where there's a, there's a comparison made to how severe God judged those who rebelled against Old Testament religion. How much more severe will he judge those that rebel against New Testament religion? And then there is the warning for them to persevere as Christians and to exhort themselves to hold and to encourage each other to hold fast their profession of faith. In the middle is a short paragraph explaining what I've just taught you about these four passages. Much more could be said. I hope enough has been said. I am very thankful to the God of heaven who in his mercy in 1988 explained this book to us so that we could understand it. And these four passages were no longer difficult to us. These four passages, we no longer had to say, yep, you can lose your salvation or nope. Those are just false professors because there's far too much said. There's way too much said for either of those explanations. Those explanations don't work. The explanation I was taught that it was hypothetical and impossible wouldn't wouldn't do any good for anyone. But when we look at John the Baptist coming on the scene in Matthew chapter 3 and saying the axe is now laid to the root of the tree and he has a fan in his hand, God has a fan in his hand getting the heat of his furnace up, the furnace of judgment that was going to come on that generation because John the Baptist said, ye generation of vipers. He wasn't talking about hell. He was talking about the burning up of Jerusalem that was about to take place in a few years. John the Baptist taught it first in the New Testament. Then Jesus taught it repeatedly. He, he taught it that it was going to happen to that generation. He said, there be some of you standing here that shall not taste of death till they see the Son of God and His kingdom coming in power. And the Son of God and His kingdom came in power at Pentecost, of course, but everyone was still alive at Pentecost. Everyone was still alive at Pentecost that Jesus addressed in Matthew 16, 27, and 28. But 40 years later, many of them had died, so His words, there be some of you standing here that shall not taste of death till they see the Son of God coming in His kingdom with power. And He came in His kingdom with power and burned up that generation, burned up that city, had that temple tore down stone by stone, and Rufinus Torinus drug plows across the top, the commander of the 10th legion, until travelers could not recognize that a city had ever been there. The Lord Jesus Christ had adversaries, and a certain fiery indignation and wrath came upon them. And the Apostle Paul wrote that epistle to the Hebrews, his only one to the Jews, in which... He told them in chapter 4, Therefore, let us take heed lest any of you should seem to come short of it. This gospel rest that God has given us, this gospel rest, if you're not careful, you're going to come short of it. He also said in that same chapter, as he approached the 12th verse, he said, Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. And that example of unbelief is two whole chapters long, or half the chapter of four, most of the chapter of three, the generation in the wilderness that came out of Egypt. They wouldn't take the land of Canaan. They wouldn't take God's rest. God destroyed them in the wilderness. This generation 
They had had the gospel preached to them. They had believed it. They had been baptized. These particular believers that Paul's writing to, and he's telling them, don't you dare go back. You keep believing. Let us therefore fear, Paul speaking as a Jew among them, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. He didn't want any of them to miss the rest of God. If they missed God's gospel rest, and that's what the rest is in Hebrews 4, then they would be back under the judgment that was about to come on that generation. That is the explanation for the book of Hebrews in some of the, in those four places in it that are troubling and confusing to many, that it's a temporal judgment upon that generation of a particular group of people, and that generation had been very carefully isolated and warned in the New Testament scriptures. And they had been warned in the Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament ends with Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6 that John would come and warn and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children of the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. John did not turn the nation to God, and Jesus Christ and God came and smote that nation with a curse and destroyed them. And as Matthew 21 explains, the kingdom of God was taken away from the Jews and given to a nation bringing forth fruits thereof. And who is that? That's you and me. That's us. Us Gentiles. The kingdom of God was taken away from the Jews and given to the Gentiles. Now how important is it to you that we have the best church we can possibly have? I want the best church that we can possibly have. I want all of us pulling together, embracing each other, loving the Lord Jesus Christ, lifting up praise, that with one mind, one mouth, we glorify God, that He will hold off His judgment even upon this nation for the sake of the prayers coming up from this church, that He will put a protective hedge about all of us, our families, our children, our children's children, because we are doing everything that we can and everything that we should to make this church, this body of Christ, all that it should be, for the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews is primarily to that generation of that particular group of people, but we can read every bit of it and delight in the glory of Jesus Christ. Why is it my favorite book in the whole Bible? Because it more specifically and more thoroughly lifts up Jesus Christ in every chapter than any other book. That's why I love it. I'm a Gentile in 2014. Do not think that I am taking away a book of the Word of God from you. I am showing you what its primary fulfillment is and how we ought to look at it. When it says that we ought not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but we ought to come together and exhort one another and so much the more as we see the day approaching. You know, we don't know when the Lord's second coming is, but we know that 70 A.D. is 1,944 years ago. So we're thinking about the second coming and we want to exhort each other and wherefore comfort one another with these words. The Lord's going to send from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Those are the things we want to talk about and we can exhort ourselves on a secondary basis out of that epistle as well as any. I just like the fact that I can read through, through there and see the absolute perfect fulfillment of every prophecy Paul made in those four places that it took place in 70 A.D. upon the generation that crucified Jesus Christ, just as Jesus said it would. I see the fulfillment and I rejoice. I see Paul's argument by the Spirit, I rejoice. Then we buckle down and we love the Lord Jesus Christ and serve Him with all our might because we have received a kingdom which shall not be moved. It is the final kingdom And our God is a consuming fire, and we want to please and serve Him as well as we can. Listen, I have tried to preach to you about the assurance of eternal life, 
but we want to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And Lord, help all of us to do that. Don't cast away your confidence, brethren. Flee to the refuge in the hope that is in the Lord Jesus Christ that's within the veil. As Hebrews 6, last three verses taught us when we started a few minutes ago. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen. Amen.